This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, Doug, of course, nicely setting up uh, all the big bank earnings today because we are seeing J.P. Morgan and City Hire, Wells Fargo, not so much. Let's lay it all out for you and also check in with a top-performing financial fund manager, get uh, his view on this as well. First up, though, Allison Williams is with us. She's Senior Analyst, Global Investment Banks and Asset Management at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's in our interactive broker studio along with Anton Schutz. He's President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, uh, based up in Rochester, New York. Uh, they've got about seven. $150 million in assets under management. Great to have both of you here. Allison, I want to start with you. I know you've had a long day. You've been up early checking out these earnings numbers. What do we need to know about J.P. Morgan City and Wells? So I would say the bottom line is healthy consumer. J.P. Morgan uh, continues the story of being helped by uh, market share gains. Um, Citigroup uh, came out with a new target. I think it was it's it's more of an achievable target. It's still above consensus. So uh, their previous target had been thirteen and a half percent return on tangible equity, twelve percent for this year. They made the target for this year, so I thought that was a positive because that was they really kind of cut it close there. Uh, their target for next year, twelve to thirteen percent. I think consensus is slightly below that, but they're going to have an investor day in May, so hopefully we'll get uh, more detail around that. Wells Fargo, um, the real negative news there is uh, we had a big legal charge. So um, new CEO, new era. Um, my guess, problems. My guess would be we're trying to put the as much in, we know we're trying to put things behind as much as we can. Um, of course, time will tell if they're being conservative at this juncture or, you know, what the ultimate costs are. So the fears are that the, uh, the you know, the legal costs could be um, more than people had anticipated. We know that litigation is a long tail risk. We know that the U.S. banks versus the European banks got their issues related to mortgage behind them. And that was good to get sooner rather than later. But um, you know, more than expected, not good. And just again, on the in general, on expenses, right? So we have this big uh, legal cost, which is very visible. But there, I think there's a lot of expenses related to all the issues they had. When are they going to go away? Not a lot of visibility, um, and sort of not a lot to, I guess, hang your hat on, as they would say, um, in terms of the near term. And Anton, come on in here. I mean, if you had to distill it down, what would you say to people? day one, sort of end of day one of earnings, what really jumped out? Um, I mean, as the consumer really yeah. is, is strong, and I think that's really what's going to drive the economy this year. So looking good there, non-performing assets across really all asset classes, again, not an issue, you know, no recession in sight, no pain. Um, but, you know, the reality is those, this is a stock picker situation. I mean, very clearly, J.P. Morgan, you know, as, as nice a quarter as you could have, Maybe it's price for perfection, but but boy, great numbers, return on equity, everything was good. Um, and you know, City's the cheapest on a price to tangible book value, so all they needed was a little upward guidance on their return expectations. And so if that'll appeal to a value guy, 
Right. What about, um, well, it's interesting. So on J.P. Morgan and Citi, I mean, J.P. Morgan was up 43% last year, and then you got a dividend on top of it. But I'm just wondering, when you look at these names, even with the run-up, as you say, you know, these guys are doing well, do you add them to your portfolio? What do you do in an instance like this when you, you like them, right? Well, you Try know, that's that's the thing. If you're, if you're priced like that, you've got to keep performing that way. And, you know, J.P. Morgan trades above two times book. I'm not sure how aggressive they'll be on their buyback up here. The numbers aren't quite the same right. as when you're trading at a discount to book or close to it. So City will be more aggressive. Wells will be more aggressive because it's kind of one of the only things they can do to, to drive earnings, you know, under this revamp right now. So it'll be interesting to see how J.P. Morgan does on its buyback. Wells. Go ahead, Jason. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Wells, Allison, I mean, how much time do we give the new guy? Like, I, I would think, you know, you go in and you want to hit the ground running and you want to make sure, you want to say to your team, give it to me, give it, give me everything, because anything else that is going to come out, I want to get it out and be done. Like, what? how much time do you give this? But I, but I think it is important, especially, um, you know, what the new management has to be thinking is that it has to be done right to so the right. So this is the third CFO, um, you know, since September 2016. Um, and I think, you know, a part of the issues with the prior CEOs uh, were that they were internal. So they came from internal. So there was still a lot of political backlash. Uh, but also, I think there were some issues with perhaps them not getting things done fast enough. But I think, you know, Charlie's going to want to come in and, you know, make sure um, that things, the systems are in place and that um, things are truly behind them. I think where investors might get impatient is, um, you know, as I said, having some kind of target, some kind of, um, you know, sense of, of what the future is, what, what sort of direction the bank is going into. So maybe they don't have to check every box, um, but to give some kind of idea uh, of targets and time frame. And, you know, keeping in mind the new CEO did, just came in, you know, right after the, the last, uh, right, well, right, it was right, right around the last earnings. Uh, and Allison, just quickly, 30 seconds, what are you looking most forward to tomorrow as we continue to hear from big names? Healthy Consumer, uh, Good Fick at Bank of America and Goldman, you know, really going to be looking at those trading numbers. Um, you know, we had a huge upside. We're expecting big growth from from Goldman just because of the week year ago. Bank of America held up a little bit year ago. But, um, you know, trading and consumer are really uh, where we're going to be focusing. All right. Allison Williams, Senior Analyst for Global Investment Banks and Asset Management for Bloomberg Intelligence. She was here with us in our interactive broker studio. Anton Schutz from Mending Capital Advisors. He's going to stick around. We're going to dig into maybe some smaller banks in just a minute. You're listening to Bloomberg. Let's continue with Anton Schutz. He's President and Chief Investment Officer at Menden Capital Advisors, over $750 million in assets under management. I want to move on to some of the other names in the sector. Anything else, though, that you think we need to know about the big three that reported today, Anton? No, I mean, I think it was pretty self-explanatory in their numbers. I mean, one just obviously facing growth issues and regulations. Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't have revenues, you can't put up numbers, and they're capped on growth for Wells Fargo. Do you expect the same to continue as we hear from the rest of the big banks? Um, yeah, I expect credit to be good. I expect FIC to be good. So the bar has been set for everybody. Right. So it's going to be a high hurdle for all the next reporters. Um, and that usually happens, you know, because if they don't blow away what we've seen today, they may actually trade off tomorrow on good numbers. Right. So, Anton, you've been looking at this sector for a time, I, I think it's fair to say. You know, here we are, you know, 11, 12 years, depending on your uh, math, I guess, <laughs> away from the financial crisis. And, you know, some of these banks are stronger than ever in many ways, especially a couple that report today, and most notably J.P. Morgan. What do you make of sort of the banking and the financial services sector here in 2020? Uh, 
a decade plus on from the financial crisis? Well, we have we have less players. You know, with cons- consolidation among the bottom, not necessarily the top. The top consolidated during the crisis. They have way more capital than they've ever had. Uh, they've got a new accounting standard, Cecil, which I won't get into, which is going to create even more of a, a cushion. So the banking industry is incredibly healthy. Um, what they do have is fintech trying to get at them. Right. And they're certainly using technology offensively as well, but that's certainly something nipping at their heels. They have all these private debt funds uh, stealing loans, which, which if you think about the next time there's trouble, they're going to be in those debt funds. The banks aren't, aren't doing it. The debt funds are. And, and so there's this adverse like selection the in the private those. credit yeah. market that we've exactly. talked so much about. Yeah, exactly. And, and some of the better household names are doing a better job of it. But but the lower tier names are had, having adverse selection. So, you know, people aren't saying banks aren't lending. Banks are lending. But if you're going to lend to somebody at seven or eight percent, the banks are gonna, not going to charge that. So it's an adverse loan. And, and so those funds will eventually get hit. When you look at some of the big big names, it does feel like J.P. Morgan constantly hits it out of the park. Um, Do you have a favorite name or one that you just, you know, kind of respect the most in terms of strategy and how they play it? Well, I I, I mean, I give a lot of credit to Brian Moynihan at Bank of America because, you know, he inherited, you know, countrywide, he inherited Merrill Lynch, and he's really made that all into one company, and he's really got them all working well together. So I think he's done an incredible amount of heavy lifting in not that many years. You know, Jamie Dimon's done an incredible job for a lot of years, and he's had right. a good head start. But uh, I think Brian's done a really, really good job uh, at Bank of America in, in molding that company. And, you know, I also think that, uh, you know, PNC has come a long mm. ways as well. And, you know, we'll see how they evolve. But from a technology standpoint, they've spent a tremendous amount of money and effort uh, in, in becoming a, a bank that's becoming national. Mm-hmm. Right. So speaking of the nation, uh, Anton, let's talk a little bit more about some of the regional banks. I mean, where do you look for value there and, and how do you assess them in this changing environment that you've described? Sure. I mean, one of the things that, that has always driven me has been geography. And if you think about the geographies that have things going for them today, they're ones that have zero or no state income tax. Mm. So there's really great growth in places like Tennessee, the South has great growth anyway, right. but if you go down to Florida, you know you get a thousand people a day going to Florida. Uh, Texas has a tremendous amount of immigration as well. So those states already have got an advantage. So if you get the banks in those states, they've certainly got an advantage on a growth perspective. Then you think about other things that are going on that could be disruptive. You have a very large tr- merger in the Southeast, which has taken place. Right. BB&T and SunTrust have gotten mm-hmm. together. They've created a new company called Truist. And worst name. Wor- well, worst name yeah, ever. you know, that is, uh, <laughs> I, and I'll tell you, the whole industry sort of talks about it, that, that they paid somebody for that name. Yeah. Now, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, look, SunTrust is a great, great name. Great B- name. BBT was well-respected. Nobody knew what that meant, but yeah. This, SunTrust. Somebody got paid Tru- for Truist. Truist. Anyway. And, and we'll see if we laugh about that years from now or we yeah. just, it, it gets forgotten. But, but what that does is they're going to save a billion six. Well, if they're saving a billion six, that means there's a lot of bodies on the street. It means yeah. a, lot of, a lot of customers still looking for new homes. Yeah. So it's really good for those community banks in those markets. Interesting. I mean, if you're in Atlanta, people in Atlanta are mad that that company's left. Right. Right. You know, if, if you're in a lot the of li- North the Carolina. The latest bank to leave. I mean, the, yeah. there has been that sort of migration of a sort of all the banks to Charlotte from Atlanta. I say this as a former Atlantan. It's painful to watch. Yeah. I mean, you, even if you just go to Winston-Salem yeah. and you look at BB&T moving to Charlotte, there's 2,000 jobs affected. So, right. you know, this, this, that disruption is an advantage for all the small community banks in every one of those markets. 
So people want to be in Atlanta, and there's a lot of good growth, and there's a lot of, a lot of you know, chips that are falling off the table. Among the regional names that you are invested in, what do you think is a name that maybe folks should look at? Maybe it's below their radar, sure, but maybe absolutely. they should be looking at it. Yeah, I'll give, I'll give them a couple that actually you know, have some, some, Just about 40 some, seconds. some, some market cap. So I've got a, a Maris Bank. Um, they've got a nice market share in Atlanta. They bought a company called Fidelity Southern. So they're in those states. They're in Florida. They're in Georgia. They've got great growth. And you know, I think they're also not a great acquisition target potentially as well. Um, and then Veritex in Texas, they're in Dallas and Houston, about $8 billion in size. So, you know, I'm not sure they want to go above that Dodd, Dodd-Frank uh, right. level. And right. so I could, I could see them, you know, potentially being a great acquisition target. They're buying back a lot of stock. So, you know, it's got a nice safety net underneath it and two great growth markets. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Always love, a pleasure. Love, love, love talking about the sector with you. Anton, thank you. Anton Schutz, he's president and chief investment officer at Menden Capital Advisors, joining us in our interactive broker studio. You know, I feel like this Carlos Ghosn story, Carol, every time we think, wow, that's the most interesting thing I've heard, or what a twist, no, or not. what a great detail. No, it's not. It is not. <laughs> uh, and thanks to some stellar reporting from Matt Campbell, there's just a constant stream of new information. Uh, he led a team that put together a really nice piece. It's in this week's magazine on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com today. Matt joins us on the phone from Beirut. He's still on the ground on the own story and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Matt, I, I got to ask you, especially since you have the perspective of really being in this story, what's the thing in this story about the escape itself that you really just zero in on as the, as Carol Master would say, whoa <laughs> moment? Well, I, I think there's there's quite a lot uh, to to say wow about in this story. I, I'm interested in in all the scenarios that were examined to get uh, Carlos Ghosn out of out of Japan. Uh, there's some discussion of that in this piece, which was published. Uh, notably, uh, there was some discussion of actually buying a cargo ship uh, and sneaking him onto it, though that was uh, rejected as too complicated. And, and in the end, uh, they did get to this very dramatic uh, private jet escape that we now know a little bit more about. Which, I, you know, this to me, um, and the wonder of this story, it's like we all these little dribs and drabs that have come out over the last week and change, actually ever since the story really broke at the beginning of the year, it, it, you know, it, we've all been captivated by it. Part of what made this be, um, I think, uh, this epic part three of this story that um, Matt's been kind of shepherding is this inside the plan of of how to get how to get somebody out of a country how to extract someone and you know it's a very movie-esque but you know the reason it can be movie-esque is because of like real reporting uh, and and matt can you kind of walk us through how the story opens well so the story opens with uh, a, a security contractor in asia uh, someone who does this kind of thing escorting vips as protecting cargoes he gets a call a few months ago from someone he knows uh, who is looking to hire for a job in Japan, uh, looking particularly to escort someone out of the country and, and looking for operatives uh, with Asian, East Asian faces particularly. And, and uh, the security contractor was sort of noncommittal and, and no one really came to mind and he never really thought of it again. So, of course, uh, he saw the news along with the rest of the world on, uh, on New Year's Eve. And that's when you connect the dots. And and uh, what you know, 
one of the things that I've been kind of captivated by in this is like, obviously Carlos Ghosn had the means to actually, you know, fund something like this, but what, what kind of, what would it go down for? Like what, what does the service actually cost someone? Well, uh, that's, uh, that's a, a very good question. Uh, one estimate that I've heard, uh, was $15 million, uh, which, uh, when I first heard it sounded insanely high. Uh, but, uh, the person who, who was providing that estimate to me then, then took me through the math. And, and one thing that you have to add at every point in that calculation is, uh, for lack of a better term, a risk premium. Uh, right. This is flagrantly illegal. Uh, everyone involved could be exposed to arrest, obviously. Uh, and people need to be compensated for that kind of risk taking. Yeah. And when you say everyone, we've actually got some names. You've got a Michael Taylor and then you've got a buddy of Michael Taylor. I mean, we've got names on the individuals who are believed to have helped Carlos Ghosn uh, get out of Japan. That's right. So far, just two names. Um, Michael Taylor being the, the leader of the group, a very uh, interesting guy with a somewhat checkered history. Uh, former Green Beret, uh, very experienced uh, Special Forces operator, ended up in the private security business, uh, but actually ended up going to jail uh, in uh, the mid-2010s over uh, federal charges to do with a bribe, allegedly bribing his way uh, to a contract in Afghanistan. So really someone uh, who's operated in, in some gray areas and, and pulled off this amazing coup on behalf of Carlos Ghosn. So Matt, I, I mentioned earlier that this is sort of a the part three in the magazine of of a Carlos Ghosn trilogy that you've um, basically been steering from the moment uh, you know that uh, Japanese officials basically arrested him on a tarmac uh, a year and change ago. Um, so what have what have you learned and and what is what is his escape? What you know put put it all in context. What it, what does it mean for uh, for people to know? Well, I think the big thing here is that he has now turned the tables. Over the last year, uh, he seemed pretty helpless. Uh, this uh, real titan of business, this very respected corporate figure, uh, was suddenly just completely at the mercy of the Japanese justice system, and, and none of all the none of the advantages he had—money, connections, access to the media, whatever—it didn't seem to count for anything. And and it was, uh, you know, really a tale of a guy kind of alone, kind of abandoned, and, and facing a, a pretty grim fate, uh, that's now completely changed. Uh, he has gotten out of uh, the threat of being sent to a Japanese prison, though he's certainly not out of the woods yet, as, as we discuss in the story. What? Right, and, and I want to end on that note, Matt, if we can. I mean, not out of the woods because he's essentially, without overstating it, sort of a different type of prisoner at this point. By, by some accounts, he, he's not free to go in in any sense right well he is jason uh, certainly free to to live uh, here in lebanon right. uh, at, at least as far as we know there there is judicial proceeding that is going to run its course here uh, but it's very unlikely he'll be extradited so he is he's fine to be here for now uh he certainly can't travel anywhere except uh, perhaps to france where he's also a citizen uh, and the other thing is, you know, his reputation has not yet been rehabilitated. And, and I think if he uh, entertains thoughts of a comeback, which which he very well might, there's a long way to go to that. And I'm just going to say, as you so rightfully include in your story, it's another case of the winner-take-all in the game of 21st century capitalism. If you've got money and means, you can get yourself out, Matt, just quickly. 
Indeed, yeah. Well, it uh, it turns out that uh, you know we were very surprised in Japan that he couldn't beat the system, but uh, he was able to exit the system, which is not something that, that most criminal defendants. <laughs> the the other option, go yeah, way outside it, the box. If you can't beat the system, just change well, the system altogether. Go All in right. a box to go way outside <laughs> yeah, the box. Exactly. exactly. You got to get in the box. All right, Matt Campbell, thank you so much, senior reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Beirut. A terrific story. Sorry. It's in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg but available on the terminal and Bloomberg.com today. And our thanks to Jill, too. Yeah, uh, we want to talk a little bit about Boeing because there are lots of stories on the terminal, but one in particular really caught our attention, uh, and it has to do with why the Boeing CEO doesn't need a bonus to fix the 737 MAX. Brooke Sutherland is deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. She is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We've been talking before we got going on air. Um, lay out your argument here. So I think it's helpful to talk about exactly what the new Boeing CEO is getting paid. So he is getting a salary, about $1.4 million. He's getting a bonus that should pay out uh, at Target in 2020 at no less than Target. So that's $2.5 million. He gets long-term incentive awards worth about $7 million, and then a special dispensation of about $10 million to make him whole for what he left at Blackstone. And then on top of all of that, he's getting this special $7 million bonus if he can get the max flying again successfully All and right. safely. So that's salary plus four bonuses, I think I, I figured out. Yeah. It's a lot. It's and a it's lot. egregious when you think about the fact that there is nothing more fundamental to the Boeing CEO's job right now than getting the 737 max flying again. So you would think that this would be covered by some of those other payments and bonuses. Like coming into the job, you know, okay, that's my number one responsibility as CEO. That's my job. So what's the argument on the other side here? Look, I mean, I think that people often make the argument that you need to throw a lot of money right. at executives to get them to take on these especially difficult situations. I don't think I ever really agree with that. I mean, I, I think you could find a lot of people willing to take a much lower salary to run a company like Boeing. But with the case of Dave Calhoun, I mean, he's been on the Boeing board since 2009. He was in the running to be CEO at one point, lost that job to Jim McNerney. I mean, his reputation is very much on the line here as well for all of those decisions that he blessed as a Boeing board member. And so I think salvaging his own reputation should arguably have been incentive enough to right. take this job. And what does this say? You know, it's hard to look at this and not think about of course, his predecessor and sort of that pay package and sort of the intricacies. And we talked about that late last week, but also some other places where Dave Calhoun has worked, most notably GE, you know, where where we've seen not just the compensation piece, but just the, the kind of enabling of this kind of CEO culture. And I know you've written a lot of, uh, about that. That seems to be at the core of this too, right? I would agree with that. I think that as we have gone through this max crisis, I have seen a lot of parallels to GE. I covered GE throughout all of its problems. And I think there are a lot of similarities there. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. You have a lot of former GE executives that went to Boeing, um, including Dave Calhoun. And I think that you have this culture of, of profit must come first, but also the executives are removed from the day to day. And so they have these objectives, but they're not necessarily 
aware of what the employees are doing. I think you saw that with Dennis Muhlenberg, where he appeared before Congress and said he did not, in fact, know the contents of those first batch of disturbing messages among employees until they were made public. Right. And I think that's really telling in terms of what this culture is. And, you know, Boeing has said these are a few employees and, and you know, this doesn't represent who Boeing is, but the onus is on them to really prove that. Especially when you've got stories, as we said, multiple stories on the Bloomberg today about, you know, more emails and were, you know, that are coming to light to show about what was going on on the inside um, to show kind of some of the turmoil. I guess what I think about this, Brooke, is you talk about culture, whether it was Boeing or General Electric. I feel like this is across many industries that, you know, we used to kid, and for years you've seen this, if not for decades, a CEO coming in, you know, has got a package coming in and also negotiates the package going out. They are covered on both ends. You know, I, I don't know, how do you change this? Because, you know, boards are voting on this and those boards are, you know, in, I think, agreement that you need to have these packages. How do you change this? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's basically, I don't think there's great incentives there for the CEOs to do the right thing. Sure, there's upside potential to your Where's compensation, the but there's very little downside risk. There's a limit. I mean, you brought up Dennis Muhlenberg. He's still walking away yeah. with you know, I think $80 million. And a lot of that is pension and deferred compensation and vested stock options. But where are the but shareholders or the activists to say, because ultimately, right, it's shareholders that pay for it. But I think it, that requires or, a pivot in the thinking among shareholders. And you're starting to see some yeah. of that. You're seeing a lot more shareholders talk about all stakeholders and caring about the overall picture. Right. But that hasn't historically been the case. And a lot of these CEOs the numbers looked good under yeah. Dennis Muhlenberg. I mean, Boeing seemingly could do no wrong before these max crises. Um, the stock price just kept going up. They just kept generating more and more f- cash flow. So if you're a shareholder, you must have felt pretty good about that at the time. And, and even with GE, to a certain extent, I, you know, it was never at that point where shareholders were really up in arms in, until it was. Well, it just makes me feel like you, you're, it's a much more passive, you become much more passive in your position, potentially. Well, and on the other side, I mean, I also think a lot about the private equity model here, which obviously Dave Calhoun spent some time at Blackstone. And this is private equity playbook in a, in a lot of ways, basically saying mm-hmm. incentive payments, you know, throw a lot of money at somebody in order to solve a problem. But that does ignore, to your point, Brooke, this sort of much more holistic look that people are trying to take. It's such a great take. Uh, Brooke great. Sutherland deals in industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Check that out. It's one of the most read on the Bloomberg today. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Tuesday. Back with us is Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group. Uh, Michael joining us once again on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Uh, Michael, Happy New Year. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, It's been a a fascinating day to watch uh, the equity markets, which kind of started out with some losses and they rallied. Uh, Thank you, bank earnings. Thank you, even Boeing. 
uh, some news there, uh, and then fell off on that trade headline. Uh, tariffs on China specifically going to be there until uh, after the U.S. presidential election. Um, I don't know. Do you care about any of this, or do you focus on fundamentals? Are you, are you just picking stocks? What are you doing here in this market? Well, I think you have to look at the big picture. Um, you know, it's been said that markets climb a wall of worry. Well, in 2019, there was plenty to worry about between the trade war with China, the slowdown in corporate profits. We had a yield curve inversion. So last year, the heavy lifting was done by P.E. ratios, which went up despite all this uncertainty. So, you know, as we look ahead to 2020, because you always want to drive looking in, looking out the front mirror, not the back mirror. Looking ahead to uh, 2020, we're moderately constructive. Uh, we're looking for mid-single-digit EPS growth, low inflation. The Fed's likely to remain on hold. And the big key is if we get a, a gradual improvement in corporate profits and uh, some improvement in the global economy. So that's sort of our picture, you know, in terms of overall asset allocation. There are several sectors that we like and a few that we dislike. Uh, but overall, we remain moderately constructive. Um, again, the heavy lifting will be not from P.E. ratios, more likely from earnings per share as we head through the year. And what do you like uh, when it comes to sectors, Michael? Well, in terms of our portfolios, you, it's important to remain diversified. On the growth side, we like technology. We think you have to have some growth in your portfolio. So there are some exciting things like 5G and artificial intelligence and cloud computing, big data. On the value side, we like financial stocks, which we think are the cheapest part of the market right now. They're also buying back a lot of stock, and you have dividend growth. We like the healthcare sector. That's sort of our GARP, or growth at a reasonable price part of the market. And we also like industrials if we, because we think there's going to be a gradual, some gradual improvement in the global economy. And then within industrials, we also have a little bit of exposure to aerospace and defense through an ETF that we own. So I do wonder, like, on a day like this, we've got um, a ton of Boeing news, and we've been talking about here, and the stock did rally a bit. It's off its highs as the overall market has pulled back a little bit. Um, is that a name that you're finding interest that you think – you know, all of the woes that have kind of pushed the stock down, it's worth looking at uh, if you're an investor? Well, I, I'm, unfortunately, we're not allowed to mention individual stocks. But, but I would say, in terms of a lot of this, you have to look through the daily noise, whether it's trade, whether it's commentary on an individual stock, whether it's tweets from the Fed or, for, excuse me, tweets from Trump. You have to look through the noise and try and focus on the fundamentals. So what's interesting is we have a, a bifurcated economy. And bifurcated, I mean... By bifurcated, I mean that the ISM manufacturing for an index, for, for example, remains below 50, indicating contraction, right. while the ISM services index recently rose from, from 53.9 up to 55. So the consumer's on pretty healthy footing right now. Their savings rates are solid. Household balance sheets are okay. Uh, job growth continues, although it's slowed a little bit. Wages are rising, although not great. So overall, the economy is doing reasonably well, supported by the consumer. And the key question in 2020 will really be, when does manufacturing uh, start to improve? And what are you seeing in, in that regard as you look at you know, sectors and names that you guys do follow in terms of when that may turn, Michael? Well, that's a big question going into 2020. Um, we're looking overseas. To, over the, for the past several years, we've been overweight the U.S. versus foreign, and we're still that way, but we're starting to take a closer look at foreign markets. So we're looking at things like business sentiment in Germany, Chinese exports today were a little bit better. We're watching the performance of semiconductor stocks, which are usually a leading index. And those are some of the things which are starting to turn a little more positive. 
it's in, it'll be important to watch the uh, talks in Washington tomorrow right. because we have a phase one trade deal and nobody really knows exactly what's going to be included in that. But the important thing is that there's now a de-escalation of the trade and tariff problems between the U.S. and China. And that could start to improve business sentiment and start to turn CapEx and business spending a little more positive next year. So that at least the pieces are starting to fall into place, but we'll see how they play out. And even though the U.S. is not going to cut more China tariffs until after that November vote, you still con contend that it's a de-escalation. Just got about uh, 20 seconds here. Yeah, I think I still think that's a step in the right direction. Uh, both sides need to work to better work together. It's a big global economy, but I think at least the two sides are moving in the right direction. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer for RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.